Well, together with Mike, I uh, welcome you to Rivermont and invite you to open your Bibles or one of the pew Bibles uh, to the book of Colossians, to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be exploring verses 21 through 23 as we continue our sermon series in Colossians on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Now, over the past two Sundays, uh, we have walked through the great Christ hymn of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Uh, Both Pastor Brett and Mike took us through two sermons entitled Getting Jesus Right. Now, the Christ hymn uh, paints an enormous portrait of our God, almost beyond comprehension about monumental relationships that Jesus enjoys. In relationship to his father, he is the image of the invisible God. This is big. In relationship to creation, He is creator and sustainer, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Again, this is massive. In relationship to the church, all those who are born again all across this world, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Again, He is tremendous. Today we see something of the relationship to the Colossians and to you and to me, for he clearly now is painting this portrait that Jesus Christ, in relationship to us, is our Savior. Making peace, as the great Christ hymn ended last week, making peace by the blood of his cross. And it is in this intimate relationship with the Lord that he gives us grace to remain stable and steadfast in gospel hope. So this is the reading of God's Word, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, please give us grace this day and every day to draw our life from you, walking in your steps, enjoying your fellowship. As we now give attention to your word, please open the eyes of our hearts to behold the wonders of your love. Holy Spirit, pour light upon these words which you cause to be inspired and write them upon our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, one of life's unpleasant experiences is to be at odds with someone that we care about. It may be a, a falling out with someone in your family, but perhaps it's a neighbor someone at work, but whoever it is, it's never pleasant. And conflict causes stress and anxiety. And yet, on the other hand, one of life's most pleasant experiences is to make peace with someone from which we've been estranged. When the barrier that caused the hostility is removed, there is a sense of joy and release. It's wonderful when a former enemy becomes a friend. Although many people don't realize it, they're at odds 
with the worst enemy imaginable apart from God's provision, and that is the living God. Our sin means that outside of Christ, we are enemies of God. Alienation from God should cause far more anxiety than any human conflict should ever cause. God's enemies desperately need to be reconciled to Him. And that's what Paul is addressing in our text this morning. We were formerly enemies to God, alienated from Him, engaged in hostile deeds against Him. But God, here's the Gospel, because of His great love, sacrificed His own Son on our behalf to change us from enemies to friends. He moves us from alienation to reconciliation. And being reconciled now, we have this great gift to continue in the faith and to serve Him. Now, the Colossian church, as you would recall, was in danger of being wrongly influenced by false teachers. Paul's corrective was to exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we saw, of course, in the great Christ hymn in verses 15 to 20 of this chapter. Paul lifted up Jesus as sovereign creator of the universe the head of His body, the church, worthy of preeminence in everything. In verse 20, we see that Christ's blood on the cross is the means by which God will reconcile all creation to Himself. This doesn't mean that Paul is a universalist, saying that everyone will be saved. But rather that God will remove the curse that is upon humanity and upon creation that was imposed because of man's fall into sin. Now, if you think that you're immune from the danger of being deceived by any of the false teachings of our day, you may not adequately appreciate either the craftiness of the enemy who is against us or our own weaknesses. Therefore, Paul tells us very clearly in 1 Corinthians, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Take heed, lest he fall. So we listen this day with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And he's applying, Paul's applying this wonder of reconciliation to you and to me by reminding us, first of all, of our past alienation from Christ. And then he brings us to the glory of our present reconciliation in the Lord. And then he points us to our future glorification in Him. All as we enjoy being steadfast and stable in our gospel hope. But let's begin the very first verse and part of the second verse here about our past alienation. You know, in the gospel, we know that we first face our absolute need for reconciliation. The Apostle Paul presents a before and an after portrait of our relationship with Christ. Verse 21 begins with reminding us of who we once were apart from our Savior before we came to know Christ with the description that's true of all sinners. We were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You know, alienation is a consistent, persistent being at odds with the Creator. This is you and I before... We came to Christ, alienated from God. You know what? Alienation is an ugly word. As all of us know what it means when we're in human relationships and there's separation, there's hurt and misunderstanding, bitterness towards one another. 
they sometimes, this alienation, it sometimes feels like an insurmountable barrier. In terms of our relationship with God or lack thereof, our sin, though, is what has alienated or separated us from Him. And God's holy wrath poses what appears to be an insurmountable obstacle to any form of reconciled relationship. Now think about this a little bit more deeply. Our alienation really is due to two things. First of all, on God's God's part, He is completely holy. And He has a settled wrath, the Bible teaches us, against all sin. And yet on my part, I have within me a stubborn selfishness and pride, which causes me to ignore the God who created me and to pursue my own ways apart from Him. Thus there is alienation because God in His holiness cannot have fellowship with me in my sin. He cannot compromise His holiness and I cannot eradicate my sin. We are hostile toward God in our thinking, which results in disobedient actions here in these verses. We are hostile. We have evil deeds. Jesus taught that all sin, though, begins where? Within our hearts. We see that in Mark chapter 7. Thus, dealing with my sin is not just a matter of cleaning up my behavior, but it's really a matter of changing my heart, which only God can do through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. But that's the Gospel. Now, if you listen carefully to many good Gospel conversations, and I'm saying they're good because it means that we're trying to share the love of Christ with those who need to hear the Gospel. Contrary to how many non-Christians want to portray themselves, they are not neutral about religious matters. Many are not indifferent about an idea of a God as a supreme being or apathetic when it comes to the claims of Christ, especially one who walked this earth as a loving human being. However, when it comes to the one true God of holiness and justice and absolute supremacy, rage and rebellion, hostility dominate the heart. The heart, again, has to change in these gospel conversations by God's grace. Now, I love what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, because he really explains this fairly fully in one verse. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, parentheses, notwithstanding their claim to intellectual brilliance and scientific achievement. Back to the... Verse, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Okay, here we go again. Notwithstanding their claim to be in touch with the divine at one with his ways on this earth and in nature. Close parentheses. Back to the scripture, back to this verse. Due to their hardness of heart. Parentheses, notwithstanding their profess spiritual sensitivity and openness to all things good. Before God, without Christ, the picture is clear. In your entire being, word, thought, actions, you are an enemy of God as a sinner. This is the situation. This is the dilemma. It sounds 
harsh. And yet it's biblical truth. To be preoccupied with sin, though, and as a believer, it's unhealthy for it to be too dominant. Yet to forget who we were is a doorway to spiritual pride. It's a roadblock to spiritual growth. It's if we forget what God has done for us upon the cross through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so if we don't somehow appreciate what God has delivered us from, we will never really appreciate the magnitude of His love. So if we are Christian and if we are growing as Christians, we realize that what we are as Christians is all by the grace of God. We fight pride that seeks to exalt ourselves. And of course, that helps us with our relationships with God and with one another. We confront our own sinfulness to enjoy the comforts of salvation, family. Oh, with humility, though, I'm kind of anxious to move on from this. But here is this wonderful but now that comes as a wonderful contrast in our verses. That a strange, hardened, and perverted people can be reconciled and softened and set straight through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Praise God. There is indeed a very glorious and Christ-exalting after the before of our old lifestyle. Who can reconcile such enemies to a holy God? Well, we're told here, verse 22, the beginning of it, He, that is Jesus, has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Now what this is telling us, that because of our former alienation, there had to be an intervention. If sinners were to be reconciled to God, God had to take the initiative. Sinners are not interested. They were not thinking about considering it. God had to take the initiative to show us our need of reconciliation and then to intervene in such a way that He would do what is required and pay the price so that we could be brought into relationship with Him. So what is required? It was that God would have to intervene on behalf of sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins. What was the price? The Son of God. The very One who we celebrate in the Christ hymn of the previous verses. The very One who hung the stars, who filled the oceans, who created every living being, and He even knows what each and every living being is doing. That One, the preeminent One, humbled Himself and took on our flesh and died upon the cross for sinners, for you and for me. He paid the price for our sin in order that you and I, once alienated from God, could be reconciled to relationship with Him. That's why I love some of our opening verses, but even as you hear the offertory anthem, That He is Lord of the small. We're little. And yet He sees His dear children through mercy-filled eyes. Hallelujah. Praise God that Christ did see us upon the cross. Now this does move us 
from this past alienation and what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago to our present reconciliation. And it really is asking you the question, have you been reconciled to the Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ? Has your heart moved from hostility with God to loving relationship? Have you made the distinction between thinking thoughts about the Lord and really delighting in Him? Do you embrace moving beyond just knowing about gospel truth and it being our pure and utmost delight with the desire to bring God all the glory? That is part of our present reconciliation when we're in relationship with the living God. You know, reconciliation is a beautiful picture. It's astounding way for us to understand our salvation, knowing that in the Bible there are many different words that describe our salvation. Just think about it. We hear the word redemption, which is being brought back as a slave and set free to live for Christ. Wonderful. There's propitiation in which the sacrifice of Jesus Christ appeases the wrath of God against sin and it takes that wrath against or away from us. There's justification. When we come to saving faith in Christ, He looks at us, God the Father, and He declares us what? Not guilty. And He gives us the righteousness of our Savior. But then there's this wonderful word, reconciliation. It's being made at peace with the Lord. Yes, there's a legal aspect to it, but there's also a familiar family aspect to this word. It's kind of like being invited to come sit at the family table. We have a big table. All of us are invited to sit at this table. And can you imagine a family table? Just think about it. Just think about it a little bit. Okay, I'm thinking about food because I'm transitioning from a diet to a healthy lifestyle. But the family table works. Okay, here we go. Think about any special dinner that you would enjoy could be a birthday dinner celebration. It could be a Thanksgiving feast. It could be Christmas brunch or just any gathering among God's people or at home. You know, it's one thing to bring in a stranger. I was notorious for doing that for our Thanksgiving feast. I tell my mother I would, was going to bring a stranger in for Thanksgiving and she said, okay, how many? And I'd, it would typically just be one. But it's one thing to bring in a stranger or a neighbor that you don't know very well or a new co-worker who's just moved into your neighborhood. But think about this. What about that person, that enemy, that person that wrongs you more than anyone else has ever wronged you before? Think about inviting that person that you have those imaginary arguments with in your head over and over and over again to the family table. To the family table to enjoy a meal, well, at your own expense. Think of that person being invited to your table to sit with your family. And family, that's what reconciliation is. Hallelujah. It's the enemies being brought together now at peace with each other. And in embracing our present reconciliation, restoration of relationship with God, verse 22 ends with this wonderful purpose clause in order to present you how holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, this present reconciliation that we have with the Lord has a goal. 
And I've enjoyed seeing biblical scholars really wrestling with this goal from this this perspective. Okay, is our present reconciliation really getting at our justification, the fact that we've been legally declared not guilty in His sight? Or is this present reconciliation really dealing with our sanctification, which is dying to sin, being made alive to righteousness, becoming more like Christ for the rest of our lives once we know Him? Or is reconciliation looking forward to our glorification? When God Himself returns, Jesus returns, and He he, he, he gives us a new resurrection body and all of a sudden our soul and body are reunited. Redemption is complete. Hallelujah. Is he talking about that glorification? And I would simply say, as I've read the scholars, yes. All three applied. The goal of our reconcilia- reconciliation to God includes that one day through, through the power of the cross, through the final and finished work Jesus uh, did upon the cross, that those who have been reconciled to Him will be ultimately perfected forever. That's our destiny. It's a wondrous thing. No accusation will ever stand against us. Why? Because we are above reproach. You see, Christ's reconciliation, it changes your heart. It makes you a new person. That's regeneration, being born again. Yet if you're a believer here today, you too notice that sometimes you still struggle. You're tempted with sin. The battle is not over. But oh, we don't stay there because we know that we are presently in relationship with the Lord and our future is going to be so much brighter. Going back to the family table. We're learning how to sit at the table. You know, maybe some of you grew up at a table where dinner time meant 30 seconds in the microwave, then watching whatever was on television, and then all of a sudden you go to a friend's house and they sit down formally at the table, they ask the blessing, and then they have to talk to one another. And so you try to figure out, if you grew up just not doing that, how do you do it? Or, if you've ever been to a dinner and there's more silverware, then you know what to do with. There's forks and little forks and then even littler forks. Then there's spoons and other different things and you're trying to figure out what to do. And you know what you do? You start looking at other people and you try to figure out who can help me navigate at this family table. You start looking around and saying, you know what, there are people that can help. And so now at the family table here at Rivermont, that's why we serve our children through Bible clubs and children's church and summer Bible school. That's why as adults, we engage God with one another in the scriptures and Sunday schools, in life groups, one on one. We're at the family table learning from one another. We visit those unable to make it to church, those with mobility or health challenges And we always do our best to bring encouragements from the Word of God and with prayer. And our elders bring the Lord's Supper to those unable to attend worship. These are folks that are members of this church who would love to be here if only they could make it out the door. But our elders bring the Lord's Supper to those unable to attend worship as a means of grace to encourage us onward and upward. This is all about being at the table, learning from one another. 
You see, in reconciliation, you've been given a family status. You belong to the family of God. You belong there and now you're learning the family traits and you're learning what to do at the table because the goal is your growth in Jesus Christ. With the promise that because you've been reconciled, you will one day be glorified. And that is bringing us to this last point, our future glorification as a promise. Now listen to this though. It it sounds a little conditional. If indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here's what Paul is saying. It it does start with an if. If you are to see that day and see your Savior face to face, if you're to experience the fullness of glorification All that belongs to you as a reconciled sinner. He says you must continue in the faith. You have to persevere in the faith for the promise of our future glorification. And you say promise. Or you ask promise. That kind of sounds like a warning here. It kind of sounds like the Apostle Paul is warning us saying, hey, Don't walk away or else. Okay, this is what a lot of scholars are wrestling with. And you're right. We're all right to see that. It is a conditional sentence. We have given a contingency here. But what we must also know is who is the one that is ultimately taking hold of us and keeping us to the end. It's God Himself. You can recall what the Apostle Paul has told the Colossians earlier in this chapter. He's told them that there is a hope in heaven waiting for them. He's told them that they've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His Son. He's told them that they have had their sins forgiven. And so Paul is not all of a sudden changing uh, on them and saying, well, here's a strong warning. You might fall away. He's not saying, here's a promise if you continue in the faith. No, rather he is building assurance upon assurance upon assurance. And why? Well, because we must remember the context of all the book of Colossians. He is addressing the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ because there are false teachers in the church. And he's wanting to make sure that they stay anchored in Christ and they stay anchored in his gospel. In effect, what he's saying is exactly what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. As he tells us, as we sang in our acclamation of praise, build your house on the rock. Build your house on the rock, not on sinking sand. There's a connection here between what Jesus has said and what Paul is saying. You know, dear church, what the sure foundation is. It is Jesus Christ and His Gospel. Believer, you know that He is your sure foundation. Continue building upon Him. Don't shift from the Gospel as these false teachers are trying to have you do. He's really giving us the foundation that will come later in this book. Okay, okay, false teachers are coming. They're telling you certain things to lead you astray, but 
I want you to say, no, the gospel of Christ is pure. It's what Epaphras has always already taught you. And it's what I, as a minister of the gospel, is preaching to you. That is where you remain anchored, secure forevermore. Family, this is it. This is your restoration to God Almighty from past alienation to present reconciliation to future glorification. Anchor yourself on the solid rock of Christ. Embrace your place at the family table. Can we do that? At the family table. I want to close with three prayer requests. First, thinking of reconciliation. Would you join me in prayer that sinners would be converted? That they would leave their lives of alienation and discover the restoration of relationship in Jesus Christ? And would you pray with me that that reconciliation would even occur in our midst as we welcome folks in who are alienated from the Lord so that they would hear the Gospel and come to saving faith? That's the first prayer request. Secondly, will you please pray with me for one another? That we would not shift from the gospel, that we would build upon gospel assurances, that we would enjoy our perseverance into glory. Let's pray that we would remain faithful and praise God. That's our heartbeat here. We do it well, but let's pray that we remain steadfast. And then finally, let's pray that the gospel of reconciliation goes out into our communities. Yes, it begins in our homes. But it goes into our neighborhoods and the workplace and school and into the world. Let us not exclude anyone. No group, no nation, no people from being reconciled to God. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your grand design... You have overcome our enmity towards You. You have saved us. You have saved us once who were Your enemies. You have brought us into Your family, to Your table, and we have a status we don't deserve, a fellowship we could never repair, but given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. May we grow through gospel reconciliation and conversion. May we remain forever faithful through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.